Podacumens, and welcome to another episode of the Podacesis Podcast, a podcast about what Christians believe and why it matters. I'm Brett Maddox, and once again, we're joined by your very best friends, Alan Kaysen and Jim Morrow. How are you guys doing? Doing fantastic. Top of the morning to you. Top of the morning to you. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, <clears throat> do y'all... Do y'all like cereal? I love cereal. I love cereal. I, I, yeah, I love cereal. I grew up on cereal. You know, uh, uh, rice uh, rice krispies, cocoa krispies, that kind of things. I always had a special place in my heart for Lucky Charms, though. I, I really did. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> Outside of Lucky Charms, um, cinnamon toast crunch. Oh, my cinnamon favorite. toast crunch yeah. was great. Do, yeah. you, do you like milkshakes? No, I, I had one. Milkshakes. I had one. I had one the other day, uh, holiday themed, and it, it was not very good. Uh, you know, McDonald's always does their, um, shamrock shake. Oh, do they? Every year. Yeah. 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 So we're coming up on St. Patty's day where it's everything lucky charms and everything shamrock shakes and everything just turning green around the world. And so we're excited, excited about that. So uh, it took me a second. I was wondering where you're going with that, Brett, like you were part of a bet or something, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, St. Patrick's day is coming around and you know what? It is a little bit interesting. Um, because St. Patrick's Day is not just a, a, a holiday in the middle of March. It uh, St. Patrick was um, a defender of the faith. He was, absolutely. And uh, very mm-hmm. often uh, we use some of his teachings when we talk about the Trinity. Right. So St. Patrick's Day is really more than shamrocks. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's, it's, there's more to it. And uh, I, I hope that you all will have a safe and happy St. Patrick's Day as, uh, as you celebrate with family and friends. Um, we are so excited that you are with us. Hey, hey I do want to give a special shout out before we get started with this episode to a friend of ours in ministry, uh, Michael Finn. And uh, he, he was talking to uh, me and Jim in a meeting we were in, and he just dropped a deep cut on us and just kind of a reference, bringing up the old kale smoothies. Oh, that we, the old kale smoothie. That Jim would not let go for a few it, episodes. Is, and uh, so, is, a, is an old kale smoothie better than a new kale smoothie? <laughs> they all taste about the same, I think. So. It was, I was it thinking... Was, it was like our first indication that he that he had listened to the podcast, and uh, he had he said shibboleth. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's he sure. So, did. Michael, shibboleth. thank you so much for yeah. uh, for listening. Um, yeah. Above all, thank you for your ministry and your heart for the Lord. We're just glad to be on the journey together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we want to, we want to remind everyone listening, you can hit us up on social media at Potakis is where, is where you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. You can also send your questions and comments to questions at potakises.com. And we do have a phone number for voicemail. We'll talk more about that at the end of the episode for you to be able to connect with us um, and put your voicemail on perhaps the episode. Um, we also want to give one more shout out, and that is to uh, a, a new, a new uh, friend of ours, if you will, a new friend of the shows or the, a resource of the show is Firebrand Magazine. Um, we um, ha- are big supporters of them and we uh, love what they're doing and we thank uh, them for their support of us here at the Podakesis Podcast. So if you haven't signed up for Firebrand Magazine, you can just throw it in your Google machine, just put in Firebrand Magazine and you'll find it and uh, it'll be there and go to it. There's some great Wesleyan uh, content at Firebrand and we're yeah, excited about it. If you about- remember one of our prior guests, um, David, Dr. David Watson, um, he, he's one of the general editors of the Firebrand right. magazine. And so if you enjoyed that episode with him, you're, you are going to without a doubt, enjoy Firebrand. 
That's absolutely, that's absolutely right. So we have spent a lot of time in the past several months talking about sin. We really have. Um, And it was part of, you know, we talked about creation, spent some time with that. We talked about sin, our fallenness. Last week, we, or last episode, I should say, we talked about hell and, and, and kind of the misery of the estate that we live in due to our sin, due to our fallenness. And we ended that episode with a glimmer of hope, the hope of a redeemer, the hope of someone who would come and save us, the hope of someone who would come and put us to set things back to its original intent. And so this episode starts a, uh, a long, long series of discussions about just that person, just that person, uh, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to kick off with question 21 of John Wesley's revision of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is this, who is the Redeemer of... Now, the original question is, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? But John Wesley would go in and revise us just a little bit, and he would revise it with, who is the Redeemer of mankind? Uh, Alan, do you have an answer? It is a good question. It is a great question, and I have the answer. Oh, thank goodness. I know. Of course you You do. Of course you do. You You are so lucky. You thought we would come to this episode without an answer, but... Ha! Go you ahead. showed us. Just, just, just yeah. read the answer. So yes. just, just, hold on. There's a dramatic effect, okay? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the only Redeemer of mankind is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Mm. There is so much packed into that sentence. So much packed that I'll go ahead and tell you all that we'll be able to scratch the surface just barely. Um, There have been tomes and tomes and tomes of books and articles and uh, throughout history about this very, very thing. There have actually been church councils called to determine what is the right way of thinking and the right way of believing about these things. Uh, The nature of Jesus is so important that, that our faith really rests upon this issue of who is the Redeemer, that being Jesus. So let's deal with some scriptures as we get started here. And uh, we've got a few uh, available for us today, and we're going to start with 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to turn it to our main man, Jim Morrow. Oh, I drew the, the big straw today. So First uh, Timothy chapter 2, we're just going to look at verses 5 through 6. Again, these are part of the scripture proofs that are part of the catechism. Uh, that inform the answer. So it reads this, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So this is what Paul says to Timothy. Um, and this is a wonderful situation to talk about. It talks about the humanity of Jesus here. Um, the man, Christ Jesus, as if to make quite clear that um, Jesus is fully human. It's one of the ways that we can understand and see that in this passage. Um, And then talks about the need for mediating between God and ransoming people. Right. In context, too, uh, in uh, verses 3 and 4, 
of this passage, you'll see uh, there's a kind of a almost famous uh, verse where it says, God desires that all people would be saved. Mm. And uh, this is one of the areas why Wesley would have uh, would have revised this. Uh, That's we, a perfect we're, segue. Take it. Yeah. We're, we're, we're dealing with uh, a, a, an idea of a universal scope of redemption, uh, of, the atone, universal of the atonement. Not universal salvation, right. but the universal scope of the atonement. Of redemption. Yeah. yeah. And what that means is, so for some of our Calvinist friends, uh, they believe there's a belief in what's called um, the... Uh, um, uh, uh, I'm unconditional to election. Thank you. Unconditional election. That's coming out of, uh, from the TULIP model. You can look this up in your Google machine. Just put in Calvin and TULIP and you'll see what we're talking about. But limited atonement, limited atonement is an atonement that is for the elect. It's not universal. It's oh, limited. Yeah, limited. It's atonement for the elect. Whereas Wesleyans, Arminians believe in, in a universal atonement. And the, what that means is that not that all people will be saved, but that there is a real possibility for anyone to be saved. That the atonement makes the possibility for anyone, anywhere, at any time to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You don't have to, there's not just a select few that are elected to be saved. Anyone can be be saved. And, and, so, so, by, and so by striking out God's elect here um, and putting in mankind, um, humanity, if we were writing today, probably. Right. Absolutely. Um, that um, Wesley's just simply pointing that out. He, he doesn't want to limit Christ's act on the cross. He wants mm-hmm. to um, to expand it to not right. just um, just a few, but to, to everyone. So. Okay. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And and there is a common misconception if you if you know you get on the Reddit's on your Google machine, and you look at people having arguments against Arminians. That's not right. to be confused with Armenian Christians, because that's right. a whole group. But Arminian theology or Wesleyan theology, they would make the assumption that the fact that atonement is available for all means that Arminians and Wesleyans believe everybody will be saved. Right. Therefore, there's no real need for, you know, any kind of faith response. That's not the case. That's right. It's a it's it needs to be received by faith. Right. Um, and so uh, there's just two there's multiple different ways of looking at election. We won't get into it much. Wesley does not refute the terms about election in the scriptures. Um, he reads them differently. And we talked about in a prior episode, for example, in Romans, um, if you look at the fact that Paul's talking to distinct communities of people, there is a sense of um, corporate election that is spoken about. Another way to do it is Christ is elect, and those Mm -hmm. who are in Christ are chosen. Um, And then there's a third way to talk about election in the Wesleyan sphere, and that is um, election are, are those who give themselves to Christ by faith. That's exactly right. Absolutely. So those are just three three different ways that you can they're right there scripturally. So at any rate, that's why Wesley will strike them out. He's not against it. He just views right. it differently. Absolutely. So then the next verse we're going to come to is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Uh, I think it's one of the most beautifully yes. written um, and beautifully translated. Uh, there's There's really not a translation, a proper translation, let me put it that way out there that doesn't strike me every time mm. I read John 1. And uh, particularly, we're going to look at uh, verse 14. And so I'm going to turn it over to the man of the hour, the man 
with the power, too sweet to be sour, Alan Kaysen. All righty then. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, listeners. We're just so happy to be talking about Jesus finally. Sorry about that. Um, I'm not. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So John 1, 1, John 1, 14. I can't speak. I'm so flustered. Um, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And we probably uh, may have heard this on a um, Advent during Advent or, or Christmas Eve service. Um, and the word is Jesus um, referencing Jesus. And, and, and John is already um, in the gospel. Um, said the word was with God, the word was God. Right. And he's so he's saying God became flesh. Right. Um, and made his dwelling among us, meaning, you know, among among humanity. Right. Um, so uh, getting to the part of the question um, that God became man. Right. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And this is where English translations, no matter which translation it is, can kind of fail a little bit. Uh, the word that he dwells among us or he dwelt among us, um, is the, the, actual, the word there in Greek is, uh, is tabernacle. Um, he tabernacled with us. In fact, John Wesley in his notes will actually say that in his notes on this uh, passage. And the idea there is the tabernacle is the, the place where that uh, housed the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the image of the, the, the presence of God among his people. So the idea behind this is that Jesus is the new place where we encounter God. He is the place, he is the one in which we encounter God. And one scholar would say that this one verse perhaps is the most important verse in all of Scripture. Would that scholar be you? No, it wasn't me. I'm, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just no. a quick note to all of those who would say that the Old Testament doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah. um, one, yeah. Brett just brought that up. Uh, two, um, John himself. John, the first chapter is almost the beginning, a complete remix of Genesis 1. I mean, right. you can't, if you read them side by side, you can't unsee that. Right. Um, and so it's just fully informing everything. Right. So then we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians is a wonderful, wonderful letter about grace. Um, and uh, here's what uh, Paul will write. Uh, the, the, the verse I wanted to focus on is verse 4, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a little bit ahead of it. Uh, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child, and if a child, then an heir through God." Uh, uh, Galatians 4 is getting, uh, Paul is using this, um, this, this imagery of, of, of um, growing up, 
this growing image that uh, let's take the child image there that as children we're uh, we're under the rules um uh, maybe even harsh rules of our parents um, until a time comes when we're grown and we can be free and so then what paul is saying is in a very in a sense that that's what the law was was it wasn't uh, it spoke to the kind of the infancy of of israel but now the fullness of time has come for god to do what he was going to do in setting all people including the gentiles uh, free and so that's what he is speaking of right here in Galatians chapter 4. Hebrews will say something very similar to this um, as well about the fullness of time. Uh, And I love that idea. People will always ask, "Why uh, why was when Jesus came the right time? And my answer is usually because it was the right time. That was the, that's when the time was, that's when it was supposed to happen. All right, we're going to go back to uh, the limousine ride and jet flying uh, Jim Morrow. There was more I was going to say there, but... Yeah, it just wasn't happening, was it? It just wasn't happening. Ooh, I wasn't, that's all right. I, I was trying to, uh, I was trying to uh, channel my inner Ric Flair, and it yeah. just... Uh, Woo! It just wasn't working. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and well, speaking, so, Jim, speaking, speaking hey, of, you definitely uh, did not eat your lucky charms. That's for sure. Wow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, let's take a look at uh, Romans chapter 9. Um, I'm going to read a few verses. I'm going to read 1 through 5. And one thing to, to recall is uh, that Paul is um, helping the groupings of Gentile Christians, those who were not Jewish uh, before their acceptance of Christ, and those who uh, were of the family of Israel, uh, to find their, their connection and how Christ is the Savior of all. And that is part of the context in this passage here. So verse 1 through 5 of chapter 9, Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And then he'll go on to talk about how um, salvation comes through them. Listen, he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And so uh, it's wonderful to see it. Not only do we see that the Savior comes, the Savior comes uh, to a people that then make can make the Savior known to all of the world, but Paul is making us very clear that Christ came in history, right? Um, that Christ was formed of a people, of a culture that right. God has prepared them from. So when we talk about the Savior, we're talking about Christ who comes as the son of God made human. And there is a very human historical ancestry involved in that, but there's also a divine ancestry involved in that. You see, so you've got the, the, so to speak, the genetic or the genealogical line, not geological genealogical line coming through people of Israel. But then Paul also breaks down, look, they, they have the, the covenants and the law and all of that history. So if you see through the people of Israel, the humanity and the divinity comes together through the family as well. 
Absolutely. And one of the things, if you read Romans, you'll see over and over and over this theme of Abraham, the Jews, the the kind of the the chosen people, all that. This is a theme that is all throughout. And one of the piece, reasons why that's there is to also show that God's had a plan from the beginning. Right. That there's a historical plan behind all of this. All right. The 1999 winner of the Sham, Shamrock Shake Awards. Alan Kaysen. You're just going to keep doing these introductions, aren't you? <laughs> With Luke. You will not find these in the show notes. <laughs> that is true. This will not be in the show notes. <laughs> All right, Luke. Uh, we go back to the beginning of Luke, and uh, an angel has just appeared to Mary, um, told Mary that she's going to give birth to a son. Mary's like, how's this going to be? I'm a virgin. And this is the answer that the angel gives, uh, the Holy Spirit, um, Luke one thirty five. the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy one to be born will be called the son of God. Yes. Um, and so, um, the Holy Spirit will, um, conceive, um, mm-hmm. this child in Mary. Um, it is, um, a miraculous birth. Yes. And people will ask, why is the virgin birth necessary? Why is it important? Well, it speaks to the divinity of Jesus. This is really kind of the, the piece from his very birth that speaks to the divinity of Jesus. But also, you see a very strong Trinitarian uh, image here with the Spirit, the Father, and the Son, all in, kind of in one place at this time. And uh, that is important as well. Um, <clears throat> so there is there are theories out there. Uh, that say that the church in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea invented the divinity of Jesus. Hmm. That Jesus never, now hear me, never claimed to be God, never claimed to help to be divine, just was a good moral teacher, a prophet, uh, maybe even a miracle worker, but never himself claimed to be God and that this was a move of the church uh, to during a time in Roman politics when they wanted to get in good with the Roman emperor, uh, that the church invented the deity of Jesus. Hmm. The problem with that thinking is that it's historically inaccurate. Uh, we, we have we have documents upon documents upon documents that say that there had been worshiping communities. Uh, we know for a fact. We know for a for an archaeological fact that there were communities of faith worshiping at uh, the um, uh, at Mount at Golgotha at uh, uh, where the mount the area where Jesus was killed um, in the early 100s. We know that for a fact. We have archaeological evidence that there was worshiping communities worshiping Jesus as the Son of God as divine. Um, then you also have these uh, these biblical texts. And for, for, for skeptics who say, well, you can't use the biblical text to prove biblical text, that's actually not true, because these are actually ancient documents that have historical rootings in them. To just throw them out as evidence is to, uh, is to put your own rules on something which are false rules anyway. And I, I set all this up to say, uh, that's what we have here in the book of Colossians, in the letter of Colossians. Colossians is a letter that was written in the middle of the first century, and uh, it definitely, like the book of Hebrews and others before it, will lift up that there was a community of people who worshiped Jesus as divine. And uh, Colossians 2, 
especially verse nine. Well, Colossians 1, 15 and on, mm-hmm. and then we get into the remainder of this in chapter two. Just hear these words. Um, I'm, uh, the verse I want to uplift is verse nine, but uh, I'm going to start at verse six. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, uh, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now hear this. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily." And you, and this going into verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Um, and then he goes on talking about in him, you've been circumcised in Christ and made uh, alive together with him and so on and, and so forth. And uh, Dr. Joseph Donjel. Uh, of Asbury Seminary, uh, he, he looks at this passage in, Wesley, in the Wesley's uh, one-volume commentary that you can find in our show notes. It's a wonderful resource to have on your, um, on, uh, in your library. Uh, but uh, he says this. He gives, There are three things that come out of this passage that, that really need to be uh, taken hold of. And first is this, that Christ even now lives in a human body. He, there, there, uh, so we know that in um, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, there are those uh, lines that say, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Jesus did not separate himself out of his humanity when he ascended into heaven. The gospel accounts, the account in Acts, and all the accounts that we have of the worshiping communities afterwards understand that this was a bodily resurrection, yes, and a bodily ascension. Mm -hmm. And so that, yes, it's a post-resurrection body, a glorified body, bodies that we will have in our resurrection, but he himself is in body even now at the right hand of God the Father. Well, and in in the gospel account, chapter 20, he's resurrected and he shows Thomas his, um, his hands and his feet and and he says, you know, put your finger here. And Thomas is where he says, uh, my Lord and my God, um, he, he calls him my God, he calls him, um, the, the divine. So, um, so there's a couple of things. I mean, there's the, there's the bodily form, human body there, um, and the proclamation of Jesus' divinity. 100%. In verse 11 of that Colossians passage, uh, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That points to the second piece here, that the circumcision of Christ that Paul is talking about is something that happened when he went from life from when he went from death to life when christ was being raised from the dead we get to participate in that paul's really big on this by the way in all of his letters that not only do we participate or should participate in his sufferings but we also are participating in his resurrection. We get Mm. to participate in that. So that's what Paul is getting at here with us. And then the third piece is that God's grace does not remove um, our moral requirements. Sometimes we look back and we think, well, you know, uh, we don't have to do the things of the Old Testament. We we don't have to follow the morality of the Old Testament or of the Bible, just as long as God, we're, we're just trying to do what God through Jesus told us to do. We're not we're, we're, we're not, um, we're not separated or we're not, we're not given a pass on the, the morality of things. Well, God's grace does not remove our moral requirements, but, 
but what it works by canceling our debt. So that's the thing: is sin is seen almost as a debt that we owe. That uh, and 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 what's happening in salvation? What's happening by God's grace is He's coming in and actually just canceling that debt, taking mm-hmm. it away. So Colossians is so rich; uh, it's one of my favorite letters, and it really uplifts the lordship of Jesus uh, uh, for us. Well, Absolutely. and really, so the for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives mm-hmm. in bodily form. You can't read that. So there's a couple of um, heresies that 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 particular scripture I think speaks to. Yeah, um, Arianism, which yeah. really just um, basically said that Jesus was like God; he right. was not fully God. Right. And then um, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this Apollinarianism. Yeah, Apollinarianism. Uh, That's very yeah, good. I, I was pretty. Yes. Hey, you know, yeah, hey. very good. Yes, um, that basically said that that he. That Christ didn't have the the mind of God, or um, right. was more it, it like was a separated. Puppet. It was yeah, it, it was, was separated. Yeah, um, and you so, so you can't read you can't you can't believe that and read Colossians. Right. Um, the I mean it. Christ had the fullness of God in him. Right. It was um, this, uh, and so yeah. Apollinarianism. Yeah. Think of a schizophrenic Jesus. That's always what I think of whenever I think of Apollinarianism. Is with that all, with all respect to those who. Uh, deal with that in their own personal lives, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not making light of the actual issue in people's lives, but think of kind of the separation of the natures there. Yeah. Um, that, um, and that's yeah. what's being dealt with. Um, yeah, that they don't uh, that they don't mix. That he right. either operates in one or the other. That's exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And you may ask the question of, well, why does this matter for us today? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, so uh, we got one more passage and that yeah, is Yeah, there from... are a lot of scripture proofs for this, but that's wonderful because we love scripture. Um, yeah. I'm going to pick up a couple verses from Hebrews chapter seven. Hey Jim, I'll... you didn't let me introduce you. Well, I did that on purpose um, and I'm going to move on. Um, so let's read, let's read uh, the, uh, Hebrews seven, verse 23 through 25. And there's this great, wonderful um, line of reasoning about priesthood in Hebrews. And we'll pick up here. It says, now there have been many of those priests of the kind that the writer has been describing uh, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Right. And so you have this, um, it's just a great word of being able, Christ saving us completely by the nature of who he is and what he has done. You mm-hmm. see, there's a connection between not just what he did, but his nature that is eternal, right. um, his work that is ongoing, right. that is a factor in how we are saved completely. Right. You see, Absolutely. so that's one of the ways we can tie in that the discussions of the nature of Christ are not just superfluous things that, you know, people talk about when they don't have real jobs, Um, (laughs) but that it actually matters. Um, And you can see that connection here in the scripture. Hey, one quick word, Brett, you mentioned uh, briefly that you can't prove scripture with scripture. You can't use the Bible to prove biblical facts or, you know, that, that's, that, the claim. Uh, that's the claim. That's the claim that gets, gets thrown uh, that back. Just a reminder for everybody that the Bible is not a book. The Bible is 66 right. books written across time by different people in different right. cultures. Um, and so you can absolutely even use New Testament documents as uh, supporting evidence for other New Testament documents, right. just as an example. 
Um, they weren't collected. Uh, they were collected in a, an organic fashion. Right. Um, but yes, you can. Yeah, you can. And the sure. argument from skeptics sometimes that says, uh, uh, well, you can't, you can't mention the Bible here because you're, you're going, they, they claim a circular argument there. It's not true. That's not a circular argument at all. So anyway, nice try, uh, um, it is. So uh, <laughs> the, the, the title or the description that um, uh, this catechism, this catechetical question gives uh, today is uh, the Redeemer. Uh, this it becomes a big piece for this, the Redeemer. So I think it's fair for us to take a little bit of time as we move into why does this all matter, to let's spend some time on the word redemption, what it means, why it's important to understand that Jesus is this Redeemer. Um, and, uh, you know, Redeemer, it's a biblical word. I mean, it is yeah. a, it's a, a biblical word, and it's really a word that gets, uh, uh, that, that was a uh, societal word that, that God really would take hold of to prove to show what He was doing. Uh, the Hebrew word is goel, um, the kinsman redeemer. This uh, these uh, these movements here of the idea here is um, think of it kind of crudely as buying back, buying yeah. back. Um, a great resource on this is Sandra Richter's um, The Epic of Eden. She does a really really fine job speaking of goel redemption and how uh, this speaks to who Jesus is. But there's this idea. There's so there's this debt sin. There's this debt. That that we owe, and God through Jesus Christ is buying us back. He's yeah. bringing us back home. Um, there's some beautiful pictures of this with the story of Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament, of um, and other Old Testament stories. But then it really just gets uh, lifted high in the story of Jesus and what Jesus is doing um, in 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 us and in the world. So, um, yeah, redemption becomes an important part um, in this. Yeah, and if you look back um, in Leviticus, you can see the concept of redeemer. So as we talk about how does the Old Testament law apply, I mean, it's woven through. For example, one of the major responsibilities of a family or clan's uh, goel was to buy back one from slavery. Right. Um, There's another form of redemption, which one would be tasked uh, with avenging the death uh, of one who has been taken. And if you think about Christ and his um, work against death and sin, you can see that the vengeance is taken. And so it is very much a large Old Testament concept that has to do with, we were once a part of the family of God. Right. Right. Because the the Goel Redeemer in the Old Testament allusion is a familial term. And then we are in slavery then to sin, death, and the corruption of our human nature. And one from the family comes uh, of our same nature mm-hmm. comes to buy us back from that slavery. So you can really fill that out with a high Christology. 100%. This is why understanding that we are sinners in need of grace is so important. Uh, First John, John will say that um, if anyone says they are not in sin, then uh, <laughs> they are not, then, then, Christ is not in them. Then there's 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 this um, they're they're lost because this uh, this idea of we are in need of redemption. 
is important for us and understanding that we are in need. Because if we don't believe we're in need of redemption, uh, that we're in need of saving, if we're in, that we're in need of, uh, of a Savior, then uh, we're going to be blind to what God has done and, and go do our own thing, and that's not going to be good at all. That's, that's where misery comes in. That's where hell comes in. That's where a lostness comes in. But redemption brings us out of that. It gives us a way it gives us a way out. It provides a way for all of us. You know There's what else in- I think? Uh, oh, go ahead, man. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go you know ahead. what else I think I want to hear the word redeem? What? A coupon. A coupon. Yeah. Yeah. You redeem a coupon. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it doesn't have value until it's redeemed, you know? Can, like, can you say coupon again? Coupon, coupon, coupon. Coupon? Right, in the coupon? show notes. In the show notes. <laughs> you, or, I'm sorry. In the comments. Will you, uh, will you make fun of my... Uh, <laughs> please. Please. <laughs> Wow, we are Y'all on call, point today. Call the voice, call Chuck the voicemail, and tell me Let's your do that. Chuck E. Cheese tickets. I yeah. can say tickets properly. Um, <laughs> and uh, like on a coupon, there are uh, there's this, always this little note that said like uh, redemption value like 0.02 cents. Yeah. Um, so unless it's properly redeemed, it's not worth much. Yeah. You know, that'll preach all day long. Ooh, I've done it before. Out. It's all right. <laughs> Uh, I think I lost him when I said coupon, though. Coupon, coupon. Coupon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, there's some it's also. Like, uh, it's like it's like, hey, um, did you go get the chicken coop? Yeah, the coop's on the truck. <laughs> go put the coop on the truck. All right, let's get back to why this all matters. Um, so yeah, you're the one pulling us back on task, Brett. I know, I know. So uh, there's also some other uh, important titles here that are given or, uh, in this catechism, and that is uh, the Lord, the Lord um, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, Son of God. Uh, this is one that gets uh, gets thrown out all the time to us in Scripture, Son of God and Son of Man. Uh, interestingly enough, by the way, uh, just kind of as a sidebar, when you when you look at the Son of God piece, you may think that speaks to Jesus Jesus's divinity, but it's actually speaking to his humanity. Humanity, particularly to him being Messiah, uh, because the Son of God was a title given to the kings uh, within the Davidic uh, uh, line. Son of Man, though, speaks to Jesus's divinity, and it's actually something that comes out of D- Daniel seven, Daniel. Uh, speaking of the heavenly man that comes down, the Messiah figure that comes down. Some really interesting stuff there, I think. Um, and uh, this idea that the Son was eternal. Now, and this is one that gets. This is where the Trinitarian language gets really, really ramped up for us. This is why Trinity uh, is so important. Uh, um, I don't know how many of you in uh, uh, in the Potokistas world uh, know much about how the doctrine of the Trinity came about, because if you looked, if you did a word search um, in your Bibles and you said, show me the Trinity, you're not going to find it. It's not there, the word Trinity, I should say. Uh, but what was happening is the early Christians in the uh, first, second, and third centuries were... Um, they were they, they, there were these concepts that were coming up from the scriptures themselves. You had uh, this image of God as a father who was eternal, who was doing God-like things. Then you've got Jesus who comes onto the scene, who's healing the sick and who's saving people and who's rising from the dead, who's doing God-like things. Then you've got this Holy Spirit who is at creation, who is saving people, who is leading people, who's doing God-like things. And so you've got this group of Jewish people who are now followers of Jesus, who claim him to be divine, who claim him to be God, 
But yet they want to keep this monotheistic framework that they have that is very important to them. God is one. You read Deuteronomy. God is one. That's the most important thing. God is one. We're not polytheistic. We don't worship many gods. We worship one God. So how can you have three of these entities who do God-like things and also keep a monotheistic framework behind that? These become really important. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of, of right thinking, wrong thinking. There were even times when there were uh, protests in the streets over these issues. Um, and uh, finally, in 325 AD, in the Council of Nicaea, a pagan emperor named Constantine the Great calls together uh, the bishops of, the, of Christendom to come to his palace in Nicaea, which is in the upper part of uh, Asia Minor, and to come and to discuss these issues. Now, he's a pagan. He's not a Christian when he calls these together, but he's got a lot of Christians feeding into him. He's got heretics, people. Heresy means basically non-right thinking or uh, different thinking, that kind of thing. And he's got orthodox people, people right thinking, just kind of talking with So he wants to pull them together. Now, his motives for doing this are for his empire. He, he thinks Christians, if they can come together, will be able to hold his empire together. But this is an important moment for the uh, Christians because they can solidify what the scriptures are saying about who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, who God the Father is, and if they can come to a consensus. So when they do come to a consensus, they got to have a way of talking about it. So they formulate this formula called the Trinitarian formula that speaks of God um, as a one Godhead three distinct personas or persons. Uh, the word that is they, they kind of coin is uh, in, in Greek is homoousios, which means um, same substance. So different, pe- different personas, but of the persons. same substance. Mm-hmm. Three di- distinct persons in their role and what they do, but they're of the same substance. So they can hold together this monotheistic framework while also uplifting the distinct personas within the Trinitarian, uh, Trinitarian Godhead. Um, so that was Nicaea. Uh, that gets uh, spread out a little bit more, or, or, or um, there's more work that's done to it in 381 at the Council of Constantinople. But then in 451, there's a called the Council of Chalcedon. And this is where the dual nature of Christ, this is where the argument of was Jesus 100% God? Was he 100% human? Was he 50%, 75%? What, what was going on here? And what really comes out of that is this formula that says Jesus was 100% God, he was 100% human, he was, a, the term is, uh, in English, would be God-man. That, and that is an important piece, and he doesn't lose either one of those at any point in his uh, incarnation. incarnation. And so uh, that becomes, and anything that would deviate from those, those word, ways of thinking would become heretical and wrong ways of, of thinking. And that's where you get a lot of these heresies. I don't mean to bore our listeners with some history there, but these are things that are important, uh, that are foundational. Yeah. Uh, they're foundational to who we are as Christians of how we think. Uh, the early, early Christians really believed if we can nail down these foundational things, then there's something that can be built upon that. And we, I think we do a lot of harm when we go and we just question those foundations uh, and try to chip up away and put our own thinking behind it. 
That, that's not what we're called to do. These, these are ecumenical uh, uh, decisions that were made, um, but they were made based upon Scripture. It's not like someone woke up and said, hey, I think Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. This is what we're going to do. No, the, these were hard thinking, looking at Scripture, exegeting the Scripture, what is the right way of thinking right. about these things? And, and, and again, it's not just like um, it's coming out of a wrestling with Scripture. It's coming out of a wrestling of the tradition of Jesus, because um, this is shortly after, you know, his, his life, death, resurrection, and the apostolic right. age. And it's, we know, it's not that we just want God to be one, and we want to figure out how to explain this. It's that the scripture attests to this, and the apostolic tradition attests to this. What, how do we put some sense of thinking around that? Right. Um, and in a few moments, I'll, I'll, I want to throw some resources at you yeah. uh, because it's not arbitrary. Right. It's not arbitrary. Um, in fact, I, I would invite you to do two, three things if you are really interested, because you are the Potocumen, community, you're Potocumens. We know that you uh, are likely more interested, uh, going interested, uh, I'm sorry, and going further than the ice, water, steam metaphor which yes. is not perfect. Right. And the shamrock metaphor. Um, <laughs> but you are interested in going a little further. So here's what I invite you to do. One, take a few minutes with Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas to okay. understand what the uh, folks were talking about when they talk about substance and persons mm -hmm. and natures. It's not the same way we talk about it now. It will be well worth your time um, even if you were just to hit, hit it up on the Google machine, um, and, and maybe get to some primary documents, I, it, the framework that comes out of just those sources is so logically well-reasoned that it's obvious that it's more than a framework. It right. is, it, it is absolutely sense-making. Another thing I would invite you to do is pick up Gregory of Nyssa, his great catechism, or the catechetical discourse is one way you can find it. And just in the very opening chapters, um, the one of the most convincing explanations, now it's a little dense to read, but one of the most convincing explanations of one God, an eternal word of God that is living, and uh, the spirit in one God, three persons. So those are the three things I'd invite you to do if you wanted to do some serious digging in. Um, one, it's another thing. Once the Trinity kind of clicks, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it, right? Absolutely. Well, I uh, would just say I would just say that um, it's okay to say, you know what? I don't fully understand how all of this works. Um, you know that I, Jesus is eternal. Yet he was born of a human mother. Um, how does that work? I think it's okay to to say I'm not quite sure how it works because our human brains aren't limited. Jim has just listed a bunch of resources for you to to better understand it. Um, but it is. I think it's important for us to say um, this is why we say this. This is this mm. is this right. is where the scriptures speak yes. to yes. this. Um, it's okay that you don't fully understand it, but it's it's important for you to know why right. we believe it right. um, and should believe it. 
I I love the way you put that, um, uh, Alan. Uh, This is why we believe it. That's a great way of putting it. In fact, um, you know, some more entry level uh, uh, resources that can help people if they want to get a start on this is our favorite, The Absolute Basics of the Christian Faith. And um, Alan, you were sharing with us earlier something that uh, uh, just kind of stuck out to you when talking about, uh, I think it was the dual nature of Christ, right? Sure, right. Yeah. So in... um in the absolute basis of the Christian faith. Um, it's, uh, the unit three question five, who is Jesus Christ? And, um, uh, the authors talk about, um, Jacob's ladder and Jacob had a dream and he saw a ladder going up from earth to heaven and angels were, de- uh, descending and ascending on it. Well, later in the gospel of John, Jesus refers to that. And he says, you, you will see the son of man ascending and descending. Um, basically he calls himself, uh, essentially, he calls himself the ladder between yeah, right. heaven and earth. And so this is what the book says about Jesus's dual nature. Um, um, he says, here's why it's important. If Jesus wasn't fully human, then he didn't come all the way down, down to earth. Um, and we can't get on the ladder. So the ladder doesn't, it's coming down from, from heaven, but it doesn't reach all the way down to earth. So we can't get on the ladder to get to God, essentially. And then if Jesus wasn't fully divine, then he can't take us all the way back up to God. Um, We can climb the ladder, but we can't get to where God is. So the ladder is, if he's, if he wasn't fully divine, um, sure, Jesus would be would get us on the ladder, but we couldn't get all the way, um, to heaven. And so that for me was a really great illustration, um, for the dual natures of of Jesus and why it matters. Right. Yeah. Y'all might want to pull out the ladder before you pull out the Aristotle, you know, just kind (laughs) of maybe maybe start with the ladder and And then maybe honestly start with the absolute basics of the Christian faith. Right. But I know we have people of all kinds who have different different varieties of time and, and, um, energy they desire to devote to it. Maybe they, maybe all the energy you have is you want to listen to the Podakesis podcast. There you go. There you go. Alan, which is hey, fine. And, uh, and want to remind people about the Trinity. We, one of our first episodes, I think six or seven, seven or eight on God. Yeah. Uh, I think it was question seven of the catechesis was on the Trinity. Yes. And so you might want to go back and check that out um, right. after you listen to this. So. Hey awesome. guys, can you believe that we have that many prior episodes that we can refer That's people back? We, we, can, back? we can start referring people back. <laughs> wow. We can say one of my favorite things I love to hear in podcasts, uh, back in the archives. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've got archives. We've got archives. All right, carry on. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I mentioned earlier when we looked at the John passage, John 114, that one scholar had said that it probably is that uh, he, uh, that Christ uh, dwelt among us, that um, made the uh, word made flesh and, and dwelt among us was probably one of the most important scriptures in, uh, in, in, in all of scripture. Um, and, uh, you know, it deals with the idea of incarnation, the incarnation that God came down, God made flesh. And I was thinking about how we on the podcast could speak to this on incarnation. And I thought that uh, maybe I'd share a story to uh, speak of how the what the incarnation means to me, if y'all are cool with that. So uh, I, I, I spoke to this a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I spoke to this a little bit uh, in an early uh, earlier episode, but I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, my family, my mom, uh, was nominally nominally 
a Catholic, a, you know, raised Catholic, but very nominal in it. And um, I didn't have very much uh, of a Christian background. My my understanding of God was very much, you know, from the cartoons. So I'll just uh, tell you that. Um, and I had a very, very rough background uh, in that I grew up in a lot of, in poverty, uh, divorce, lots of divorces, actually, um, lots of transiency within our home, drugs, alcohol, abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, all this stuff. Um, it's a it's a testimony to the work of God that I'm not a statistic because of what I was uh, what I grew up in. Uh, when I was 14 years old, uh, my aunt was uh, a volunteer youth minister at a small Methodist church in uh, Lake Park, Georgia, and she uh, kept calling me, nagging me to come to youth group. And I would always have an excuse. Um, you know, I've got too much homework, which was a lie because I never did homework. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I wanted, you know, I just would make up anything I could. Finally, after her nagging and nagging and nagging, and I, let me just say, if you're a nagging aunt, keep it up. Um, I think because I'm a testimony to uh, God's grace in that. Um, she kept nagging me. And finally, just to get her to shut up, I decided to go. And, um, and I liked that the, the kids that were there and my aunt being there, I was welcomed mm. and it was awesome. When I was 16, uh, January of 1996, when I was 16 years old, the, the one rock of my life, the one uh, uh, just kind of steady guide of my life, my grandfather passed away. And this was two weeks before I was supposed to go on a Christian retreat called Chrysalis, which is a teenage uh, version of the Walk to Emmaus uh, weekend. It was something my aunt wanted me to go on. And I was already kind of, uh, you know, I already had some um, doubt about going. But then once my grandfather passed away, I was done. I was like, I'm not doing that. And, uh, you know, I was mad at God. I was mad at myself. I, I hated everything about myself. And, and it's not that I never stopped believing in God or didn't believe in God. I just thought God hated me and I didn't like him back, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, I went on this weekend anyway, because my aunt was like, well, I've already paid for it. You're going. And I was like, okay, okay, that's, yeah, I, I get it. So I go and they start talking about the love of God all weekend long. And it, um, if you've been to an Emmaus or you know exactly what I'm talking about. Ah, the love of God. The love of God just all over the place. Well, for me, two weeks ago, my grandfather, the very, my, my, my life basically had just gotten shattered. And just stuff going on in the family and the home life just wasn't great. And I didn't have great self-esteem or any of that. So I really, truly believed no one loved me. I didn't even like me. So, I mean, and I knew God didn't love me or at least believe that. So all weekend, I'm just there doing it, do, going through the motions. But, you know, I've been in youth group long enough to know how to go through the emotion, the motions for that type of thing. Um, and then on Saturday night, it was January 22nd, uh, I, um, we had a chapel time and I'm sitting in the back of the chapel, uh, as prayer is going on and people are being prayed over and whatnot. And I'm just sitting there just really not doing anything. Uh, I'm just kind of glad that Sunday's coming and I can go home. And I, 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 I kind of feel a nudge. Uh, I say that kind of like a, you should go to the altar and pray, that kind of nudge there. So finally, I, I give into it and I, I go down there and there's this big man, 350 pounds, six foot five, like type guy, just a huge man of a man, right? And he looks at me and he says, um, what can I pray for you about? And I said, I really don't know. 
I just, I don't, I don't even, I, I don't know why I'm even here. So he puts his hands on my head and I pass out and I fall straight to the ground, just straight to the ground. And, um, so these people, I can, I'm awake. I can kind of see what's going on around me. And, uh, this, uh, um, this guy comes over me and he starts praying over me and things really just, I kind of just close my eyes and everything in this kind of raucous place that I'm in goes quiet. And as it goes quiet, I hear a, an in, in, internal voice within me, uh, say, Words that forever changed my life. I love you. Over and over and over again, I hear, like in the depths of who I am, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And for a kid who grew up the way I grew up, the crap that I had been through in my life, uh, the things that I had seen, um, heard, um, Hearing those words, I woke up from that and I was different. I was different. Um, that night, God met with me. I, I mean, in, in person, it was it was powerful. When I hear the the phrase, "The Word became flesh and dwelt among us," that's real to me. Because God was there and met me and, and brought, me, brought me out of my misery, brought me out of hell, it started a work of redemption in me that, that I, I, I'm not, I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for that moment. Hmm. When we talk about the incarnation, we're not talking about some theory that is meaningless. We're, we're talking about God touching lives and that God can touch your life where you are. There's nothing more I needed to hear in my life when I was 16 years old than to be told I was loved. And it's almost like my very creator knew that. <laughs> he knew that. That's the incarnation. God still dwells with us. And he dwells with you. He can dwell with you. He wants to dwell with you wherever you are in your life. Thank you all for letting me share that. It's just something I've been thinking about sharing with the community. Um, that, you know, shortly thereafter, I got called into ministry. I, I mean, God just started changing. I mean, he's transformation came quick and, and it was, and it changed my life, changed my life. Well, and we, and I pray that, that we, we all have had a, um, maybe not quite similar experience, but some kind of experience of God meeting with us, uh, dwelling with us, yeah, tabernacling with us. Yes. Um, because, um, it's not just something that, that, that happened to Jesus. Right. Right. It is something that Jesus does to us as well, um, right. dwells with us. Um, and so, um, Let me give yeah, a, thanks, just a, to broaden this out, we're talking about the incarnation of Jesus in the scripture very clearly. 
<clears throat> illustrates that the church is the body of Christ um, on the earth. And there's a sense that there's that in the people of God, that God is dwelling. And doesn't that make you one? I, you're remembering how God spoke to you in the ministry oh, yeah. of people. Um, yeah. That we have the opportunity as the people of God right. to go out and meet people and introduce them to Christ. Right. And Absolutely. That's person to person, body to body, voice to ear, touch to shoulder. That that matters so much. Right. Um, that we would be also incarnate for people. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And this this may be a good place to segue into what we're going to be talking about next episode. Uh, next episode is uh, episode 19. It's going, we're going to be dealing with question 22. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Ooh. So we're going to be going deep into the incarnation, why it's important, who this Son of Man is, who the Son of God, I should say, is um, even today, and um, who we can be as the body of Christ, as Jim has said. So I'm looking forward to that next episode. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Well, guys, uh, any loose ends? Anything uh, you want to uh, want to add? Yeah, I have a question. I have two questions. One. Um, I just, I just need to know, because this has been on my mind, um, okay. who is the redeemer of mankind? Well, I, I have the answer. Oh, Thank okay. you, because I've Go just ahead. been wondering. Yes. Yeah. The only redeemer of mankind is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Oh, thanks for that. That's Amen. good. You're I welcome. Second You're question. welcome, Jim. You're welcome. Yeah, I got a second two-part question. question. Is next episode technically our 20th? No, it'll be 19. It'll be our Are 19th. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure because this is our 18th one. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. I know, which means mm. will we be doing on 20 another live cast? Ooh, whoa. whoa. We should do another live cast. We should do we another should totally live. do another we live cast. We should do another live. Okay. Guys, Let's, if we make it yes. to episode 20, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll talk about the live we'll cast. We'll talk about another live cast. Um, remember, uh, Potty Cumans, we have a new devotional podcast, the Daily Psalms podcast. Um, and you can go on and find that on Podbean or wherever you listen to your uh, favorite podcast, the Daily Psalms podcast. A Podakesis podcast. So there you go. Uh, we are a podcast network now. Woo-hoo! So uh, uh, that's been awesome. Uh, again, hit us up on social media. At uh, Podakesis is where you can find us. Our website, podakesis.com. Um, wherever you get your podcast, tell your friends and tell your family. Call us. We want to hear from you. Call us, 404-635-6679. Get your voicemail on the show. We would love to know what you think of the show and any questions that you ha- would have and want to share uh, with others. And uh, we are so grateful for our product human community. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. And uh, until next time, when we talk about the incarnation even more, I'm Brett Maddox. 
They are Alan Kaysen and Jim Morrow, and we are out. Have a good day.